Why be Jewish? In the last days of his life, Moses renewed the covenant between God and Israel. The entire book of Devorimah is an account of the covenant, how it came about, what its terms and conditions are, why it's at the core of Israel's identity as an Amkadosh, a holy people, and so on. And now comes the moment of renewal itself, a kind of national referendum, as it were. Moses, however, is careful not to limit his words to those who were actually present. About to die, he wants to ensure that no future generation can say, Moses made a covenant with our ancestors, but not with us. We didn't give our consent. We are not bound. To preclude this, he says these words, It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord our God and with whoever is not here with us today. Now, as the commentators point out, the phrase whoever is not here cannot refer to Israelites alive at the time who hadn't to be somewhere else. That cannot be since the entire nation was assembled there. It can only mean generations not yet born. The covenant, in other words, bound all Jews from that day to this. As the Talmud says, we are all mushpa v'omed mehar sinai. We are forsworn from Sinai. By agreeing to be God's people subject to God's laws, our ancestors obligated us. Hence, one of the most fundamental facts about Judaism, converts accepted, we do not choose to be Jews. We are born as Jews. We become legal adults, subject to the commands and responsible for our actions at the age of 12 for girls, 13 for boys, but we are part of the covenant from birth. A bat or bar mitzvah is not a confirmation. It involves no voluntary acceptance of Jewish identity. That choice took place more than 3,000 years ago when Moses said, it is not with you alone I'm making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is not here with us today, meaning all future generations, including us. But now, ask yourself, how can this be so? Surely a fundamental principle of Judaism is there is no obligation without consent. So how can we be bound by an agreement to which we were not parties? How can we be subject to a covenant on the basis of a decision taken long ago and far away by our distant ancestors? The sages, after all, raised a similar question about the wilderness generation in the days of Moses, who were actually there and did give their assent. The Talmud suggests that they were not entirely free to say no. They said, the Holy One, blessed be he, suspended the mountain over them like a barrel and said, if you say yes, all will be well, but if not, this will be your burial place. On this, Rabbi Achabai Yaakov says, this constitutes a fundamental challenge to the legitimacy of the covenant. The Gemara replies that even though the agreement may not have been entirely free at the time, Jews asserted their consent voluntarily in the days of Achashvera, Shehazuiris, as suggested by the Book of Esther. Now, this isn't the place to discuss this particular passage, but the essential point is clear. The sages believe with great force that an agreement must be free if it is to be binding. Yet we did not all agree to be Jews. We were, most of us, born Jews. We weren't there in Moses' day when the agreement was made. We didn't yet exist. How then can we be bound by the covenant? Now, this is not a small question. It's the question on which all others turn. How can Jewish identity be passed on from parent to child? 
If Jewish identity were merely racial or ethnic, we could understand that. We inherit many things from our parents, most obviously our genes. But being Jewish is not a genetic condition. It is a set of religious obligations. There's a halachic principle, zachin la'adam shalobofanov. You can confer a benefit on someone else without their knowledge or consent. And though it's doubtless a benefit to be a Jew, in some sense it's also a liability. It's a restriction on our range of choices. Had we not been Jewish, we could have worked on Shabbos, eaten non-kosher food and all the rest. You can confer a benefit, but not a liability, on someone without their consent. In short, this is the question of questions of Jewish identity. How can we be bound by, a Jew, by Jewish law without our choice, merely because our ancestors agreed on our behalf? In my book, a Radical Then, Radical Now, or what's called in America, A Letter in the Scroll, it's the same book, different title, uh, I pointed out how fascinating it is to trace exactly when and where this question was asked. Despite the fact that everything else depends on it, it wasn't asked often. Because for the most part, Jews didn't ask, why be Jewish? The answer was obvious. My parents are Jewish, my grandparents are Jewish, so I'm Jewish. Identity is something most people in most ages take for granted. However, it did become an issue during the Babylonian exile. The prophet Ezekiel says, What you is in your mind shall never happen. The thought let us be like the nations, like the tribes of the countries, and worship wood and stone, the first real assimilation. This is the first reference to Jews actively seeking to abandon their identity. It happened again in rabbinic times. We know in the second century BCE there were Jews who Hellenized seeking to become Greek rather than Jewish. There were others who, under Roman rule, sought to become Roman. Some even underwent an operation known as an epispasm to reverse the effects of circumcision and uh, to hide the fact that they were Jews. And the third time was Spain in the 15th century. That's where we find two Bible commentators, Isaac Arama and Isaac Barbanel, raising precisely the question we have raised about how the covenant can bind Jews today. And the reason they asked it, while earlier commentators didn't, is because in their time, between 1391 and 1492, for 101 years, there was immense pressure on Spanish Jews to convert to Christianity. And as many as a third may have done so, they were known in Hebrew as the Anusim, in Spanish as the Conversos, and derogatively as Moranos, as swine. The question, why stay Jewish, suddenly became very real. The answers given were different at different times. Ezekiel's answer was blunt. He says, As I live, declares the Lord your God, surely with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. In other words, Jews might try and escape their identity, but they will fail. Even against their will, they would still be known as Jews. That, tragically, is what happened during the great ages of assimilation, namely 15th century Spain and 19th and early 20th century Europe. In both cases, racial anti-Semitism persisted and Jews continued to be persecuted. As for the sages, they answered the question mystically. They said even the souls of Jews not yet born were present at Sinai and ratified the covenant. Your soul was there and so was mine. Every Jew, in other words, did give his or her consent in the days of Moses, even though they hadn't yet been born. Demystifying this, 
Perhaps the sages meant that in his or her innermost heart, even the most assimilated Jew knew that he or she was still a Jew. That seems to have been the case with figures like Heinrich Heine and Benjamin Disraeli, who lived as Christians, but often wrote and thought as Jews. The 15th century Spanish commentators found this answer problematic. As Isaac Arama said, we're each of us both body and soul. How then is it sufficient to say that our soul was present at Sinai? How can the soul obligate the body? Of course, the soul agrees to the covenant. Spiritually, to be a Jew is a privilege, and you can confer a privilege on someone without their consent. But for the body, the covenant is a burden. It involves all sorts of restrictions on physical pleasures. Therefore, if the souls of future generations were present but not their bodies, this would not constitute consent. So, my book, Radical Then, Radical Now, is my answer to this question. But perhaps there's a simpler one than the one I wrote in the book. Namely, not every obligation that binds us is one to which we have freely given our assent. There are obligations that come with birth. The classic example is a crown prince. To be the heir to a throne involves a set of duties and a life of service to others. It's possible to neglect these duties in extreme circumstances. It's even possible for a monarch to abdicate. But nobody chooses to be an heir to the throne. That is a fate, a destiny that comes with birth. And it comes with obligations. The people of whom God himself said, B'ni B'chori Yisrael, my child, my firstborn Israel, knows itself as royalty. That may be privilege. It may be a burden. It may be both. It's a peculiar post-enlightenment delusion to think that the only significant things about us are those we choose. Because the truth is some of the most important facts about us we didn't choose. We didn't choose to be born. We didn't choose our parents. We didn't choose the time and place of our birth. Yet each of these affects who we are and what we are called on to do. We are a part of a story that began long before we were born and will continue long after we are no longer here. And the question for all of us is, will we continue the story? The hopes of a hundred generations of our ancestors rests on our willingness to do so. Deep in our collective memory, the words of Moses continue to resonate. It is not with you alone that I am making this corn covenant, but with whoever is not here with us today. That means us. We are part of that story. We can live it or we can abandon it. But it is a choice we cannot avoid and it has immense consequences. The future of the covenant rests with us.